You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, oh, yes. I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. Is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I'm still recovering from a crazy busy last weekend that bled into a crazy busy week. So we're just going to jump right into the stuff. It's a long episode anyway, so worked out I didn't get to the movie theater this week. This week for our last Hollywood mystery before I take a much needed week off, you're getting a two for one special with the untimely deaths of Bruce and Brandon Lee. Bruce Lee would become a martial artist and cultural icon, but would not live to see it. 20 years later, his son Brandon, following in his father's acting footsteps, was struck down in a freak accident. Today, we'll discuss the lives of both these men, what happened on their final days, and discuss some of the conspiracy theories and even a potential family curse that some believe caused their tragic ends. As a heads up, we do talk about a shooting in this episode, an accidental one, but a shooting nonetheless. Since there have been, you know, a few several mass shootings in the States the last couple of weeks, I just wanted to give you all a heads up before we get into it. So with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. After complaining of a headache, martial artist turned actor Bruce Lee would take a pain reliever and never wake up. Years later, his son Brandon would die in a tragic onset accident. How could two talented individuals in peak physical condition end up dead in such seemingly random manners? Well, before we get into any of that, why don't we get to know them first? Bruce Lee was born Lee Jun Fan on November 27, 1940, in San Francisco. Bruce was the American name given to him at the hospital. His father was a well-known Cantonese opera singer, and he was on tour at the time, which is why Bruce was born in San Francisco. And this gave the future actor both British Hong Kong, where his parents were based, and American citizenship at the time of his birth, which of course would be very advantageous in the future. When Bruce was three months old, the Lee family returned to Hong Kong. Soon after, the Lee family's life would be set into chaos when Japan launched a surprise attack of Hong Kong in December 1941 during World War II and then ruled there for four years. After the war, Bruce became a child actor, appearing in over 20 films. His stage name was Lee the Little Dragon, as he was born both during the year and hour of the dragon. Young Bruce was not the best student in the world and was getting into fights on the violent streets and rooftops of Hong Kong as young as the age of seven. 
So his parents had him take up the study of Wing Chung Kung Fu under renowned master Yip Man. His parents hoped that training would be an outlet for him to let out his anger and aggression. And turns out Bruce was a natural at martial arts. A natural that still loves street fights. In 1958, in response to an unfair punch by another boy from a rival school during a fight, Bruce would beat him up so badly that he knocked out one of the boy's teeth and the boy's parents went to the police. When Bruce's mother came to pick up her son at the station, officers warned them, one more fight and nearly 18-year-old Bruce would end up in jail. Bruce's mother soon suggested that Bruce, being an American citizen as well, return to the United States. Bruce's father agreed to this as his son's college prospects in Hong Kong were pretty much non-existent. In April 1959, with $100 in his pocket, Bruce went to stay with his sister Agnes, who was already living with family friends in San Francisco. After several months, Bruce moved to Seattle, Washington to finish high school, where he also worked as a live-in waiter at a restaurant owned by another family friend. That year, Bruce also started to teach martial arts. He called what he taught Junfan Kung Fu, which translates literally to Bruce Lee's Kung Fu. In addition to teaching his friends, Bruce eventually opened his first of three martial arts schools named the Lee Jun Fan Kung Fu Institute in Seattle. Bruce completed his high school education and in March 1961 enrolled at the University of Washington. He dropped out in 1964, relocating back to the San Francisco Bay Area and settling in Oakland. That year, Bruce married his wife, Linda Emery, in a secret ceremony, as interracial marriages at this time were still illegal in several states. The couple eventually had two children, Brandon, whom was born on February 1st, 1965, and Shannon, whom was born in 1969. Also in 1964, Bruce was discovered at an exhibition at the Long Beach Internationals by hairstylist to the male stars and future Manson family murder victim Jay Sebring. A producer friend of his was searching for someone to play an Asian martial artist in his upcoming show, and Sebring believed that he had found him. After being invited to do a screen test, the role of Kato on the TV series The Green Hornet was Bruce's. Bruce actually almost didn't take the part, though, as he didn't like the idea of being the subservient to the white main character. The Green Hornet only lasted a single season, but it did introduce American audiences to Asian-style martial arts. The show's director had originally wanted Bruce to fight in more typical American styles, which was more fist-based, but Bruce refused, insisting that he would fight in the style he was an expert in. Also, despite being the second-billed actor on the series, Bruce made less than every single other actor on the show. Bruce worked hard at furthering his acting career, but as an Asian man, only got very few roles after the end of The Green Hornet until around 1971. To support his young family, Bruce taught private martial arts lessons, often to people in the entertainment industry. Some of his famous clients included Steve McQueen and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Bruce reportedly kept a piece of paper under his pillow in an attempt to manifest his ultimate goal. On it, he'd written that he wanted to be the highest paid actor in the world and to bring a realistic view of Asian culture to mainstream cinema. In 1970, while recovering from a spinal injury that had left him bedridden for months, Bruce took a trip to Hong Kong with Brandon, whom was five at the time. Hong Kong producer Raymond Chow had contacted Bruce to try and convince him to do two films for his studio, Golden Harvest. Bruce decided to do it 
reasoning that if he couldn't get steady work in the States, he would go to Hong Kong, establish himself there until he found another way to break into Hollywood. In the summer of 1971, Bruce flew to Hong Kong for the making of The Big Boss, his first film with Chow. Although the working conditions were difficult and the production quality was far lower than to that of what Bruce was accustomed to having worked in Hollywood, The Big Boss ended up being a huge financial success when it released. In February of 1971, with filming set to commence on the second of his films with Golden Harvest, Bruce moved his family over to Hong Kong. This second film was Fist of Fury and was an even bigger success than The Big Boss. With his first leading man contract completed, Bruce was a big name in Hong Kong cinema and had become quite bankable, which meant he could control more in regards to the quality of his films. To do this, Bruce formed a production company with Chow, which they called Concord Productions. The company's first film, which not only did Bruce star in, but also wrote, directed, and produced, is one of his best-known films. That, of course, was The Way of the Dragon. Once again, the film broke records. And this time, Hollywood took notice. In the fall of 1972, Bruce had begun shooting The Game of Death, which he'd also written. Filming was paused, however, after a deal was struck with Concord and Warner Brothers to make the first ever Hong Kong American co-production with the film Enter the Dragon. In doing this, Bruce would become the first Chinese-American to lead a major studio picture, something that could give him the international stardom he had been trying to obtain. Bruce would also serve as the film's fight choreographer and direct the scenes with the heavy martial arts. As a result of this deal, the game of death was put on hold to make way for filming Enter the Dragon. Bruce Lee would never complete his version of the game of death. Several months after wrapping production on Enter the Dragon, on May 10th, 1973, Bruce collapsed during an ADR session for the film. Suffering from seizures and headaches, he was rushed to the hospital where doctors diagnosed him with a cerebral edema, which is an accumulation of fluid and swelling in the brain. The medical staff were able to reduce the swelling through the administration of the drug Manitol. The headache and cerebral edema that occurred in this first collapse would happen again on the day of his death. Two and a half months later, on July 20th, 1973, Lee was in Hong Kong for business. According to Linda, Bruce's wife, if you forgot, Bruce had met with Chow that day at 2 p.m. to discuss restarting production on Game of Death. They worked until about 4 p.m. and then drove together to the home of Bruce's colleague Betty Ting Pei, a Taiwanese actress, and they arrived there around 5 p.m. There, the trio went over the script for Game of Death. At 7 p.m., Bruce complained of a headache, so Betty gave him the painkiller Equigesic, which contained both aspirin and the tranquilizer Meprobamate, which was used before benzos became more popular for the purpose of just kind of mellowing you out, calming you down type thing. From my limited research and understanding of how drugs work, it basically sounds like she gave him like the 1970s version of Bayer PM. So nothing, nothing crazy. Chow soon left for dinner, leaving Betty and Bruce alone. Around 7.30, according to Betty, Bruce went to lie down for a nap in her bedroom and never woke up. Chow called to check on his business partner at 9.30 p.m., and Betty told him that she could not wake up Bruce. Chow then phoned Betty's personal doctor, not an ambulance, to come take a look at him. The doctor spent 10 minutes attempting to arrive Bruce before calling an ambulance himself. At 11 p.m., 90 minutes after he was found non-responsive, Bruce was declared dead on arrival to the hospital at the age of just 32. 
According to his autopsy reports, Bruce's brain had swollen 13% what it should have been, which was the likely cause of death. The autopsy found the equigesic in his system and a small amount of marijuana, which Bruce had reportedly consumed shortly before his death. Ultimately, the death was ruled as death by misadventure. News of Bruce's death sent shockwaves through Hong Kong. How could this man on the verge of international stardom, this hero of Hong Kong cinema in the prime of life, die after consuming aspirin of all things? Bruce Lee was laid to rest in Seattle, Washington, where he and Linda had met on July 25th, 1973. The following day, Enter the Dragon premiered and would go on to become one of the year's highest grossing films, cementing Bruce as a martial arts legend and Asian icon. In death, Bruce had achieved his wildest dreams. Bruce Lee died when his son Brandon was just eight years old. But before he'd passed, he taught his son a thing or two about martial arts. In fact, according to his grandmother, by the age of five, Brandon could kick through an inch board. Brandon would continue his martial arts training with a former student of his father's when the family relocated back to California after Bruce's death. Because apples rarely fall far from the tree, Brandon was also a tempestuous teen whom would drop out of high school in 1983, but he did later get his GED. After dropping out, Brandon went to New York to study acting and had some early success on the stage. He would return to Los Angeles in 1985, where he'd work as a script supervisor, which is someone who keeps an eye out for continuity during filming. This was not a lengthy career, as Brandon was soon approached to appear in the made-for-TV film Kung Fu the Movie, which was a follow-up to the TV series Kung Fu. There's a little bit of poetic justice with Brandon being cast as the illegitimate son of the lead character, which was played by David Carradine, as the show had reportedly been originally conceived for his father. Brandon's first leading role would come in 1986's Legacy of Rage, which was a Hong Kong action thriller. Another kung fu movie spinoff would follow, as well as a series of B-movies. In April 1991, Brandon was on the list of contenders to play his own father for the biopic Dragon the Bruce Lee Story, which ultimately released in 1993. Brandon pulled his name from consideration, deciding it would be too weird to play his own father and too bizarre to pretend to romance his own mother, even though it would be an actor, which, yeah, fair. Anyway, Brandon would break into the Hollywood mainstream with films like 1991's Showdown in Little Tokyo and 92's Rapid Fire. In the fall of 1992, while doing publicity for Rapid Fire, Brandon landed the lead role in The Crow, an adaptation of a comic book by the same name. It tells the story of Eric Draven, a rock musician raised from the dead by a supernatural crow to avenge his and his fiancé's death. Brandon would drop a significant amount of muscle for this role to look like a punk rocker and not a martial artist. On March 31st, 1993, while filming The Crow in North Carolina, Brandon was accidentally wounded on set by defective blank ammunition. In a pitch black twist of fate, it was during the filming of his character's death scene. Before shooting this scene, the gun, which was a real revolver, was loaded with improperly made dummy rounds made from live cartridges that had the powder charges removed by the special effects crew. This was done so that in close-ups, the revolver would show real-looking bullets. Well, the crew in charge of the weapons neglected to remove the primers from the cartridges, which is the back part of the bullet. 
When you pull the trigger of a gun, a metal firing pin goes into the primer, which is what sets off everything else. It's essentially the gun version of the tip of a match. At some point before the fatal event, a dummy round had been fired out of the gun accidentally, as that gun was only supposed to be used to fire blanks for obvious safety reasons. Although there were no powder charges in dummy rounds, which gives the bullet the propellant to move out of the gun barrel at its lethal speed, the energy from the ignited primer was enough to separate the bullet from the casing and push it partway into the gun barrel where it got stuck. While prepping to shoot the scene where Brandon's character is shot, the gun was loaded with the blanks, which contain everything a bullet does except for the the metal projectile. Typically, in the case of blanks, that's replaced by paper, which will, you know, burn up before anything can leave the gun, allowing the weapon to be fired and give the sound and flash a gun makes when fired. But a blank has next to no actual risk of any projectiles really leaving the barrel. This does not mean it's 100% safe. People have died from getting shot by blanks. For example, an actor in the 1980s died shooting himself point blank in the head while messing around with a gun loaded with blanks. Life tip, if a gun is loaded with anything, it should be considered lethal. Because the gun was not properly checked before the blanks were loaded and ultimately fired, the bullet that had gotten previously lodged in the barrel was then propelled by the power of the blank going off. The dislodged bullet left the gun close to the speed of a normal bullet, and Brandon was struck in the abdomen from about 15 feet away. After being shot, Brandon fell backwards instead of forwards as he was supposed to. When the director cut, Brandon did not move, and the crew thought he was either still acting or just messing around. The stunt coordinator, who immediately checked on Brandon, noticed something was wrong as he was unconscious and hyperventilating. The set medic went to check to see if he'd hit his head or had, you know, something similar. Not thinking that Brandon had been shot since there was initially no visible bleeding. He took Brandon's pulse, which was normal, but within two to three minutes, it slowed dramatically and then stopped. Brandon was rushed to the hospital. Attempts to save him were unsuccessful, and after six hours of surgery, Brandon Lee was pronounced dead on March 31st, 1993. He was 28 years old. The shooting was eventually ruled an accident due to negligence. Brandon was laid to rest next to his father on April 3rd, 1993. With the support of Brandon's fiancée, Eliza Hutton, whom he was planning to marry two weeks after he died, and his mother, the crow was finished using doubles and would later pave the way for CGI artists to figure out how to make actors appear in films after they passed away. The crow would open on May 11th, 1994 at number one and would become an instant cult classic. Brandon's death led to the re-emergence of conspiracy theories surrounding his father's untimely death. To this day, some believe that there could have been individuals with dark motives or even that something supernaturally sinister was responsible for both of these freak events. So let's get into all of that, shall we? Back in 1973, when news of Bruce's death reached the Hong Kong press, Raymond Chow tried desperately to keep any scandals from bubbling up. Bruce had died at the home of another woman and in her bed, which is not a great look. Chow was worried that this series of events would taint Bruce's reputation, so he claimed that Bruce had died at home while out on a walk with his wife. Of course, within days, the Hong Kong press had learned the truth by looking at ambulance logs, and Chow's lie, no matter how well-intentioned, instead fueled rumors and scandals involving the actor and whether or not he was having an affair with Betty. 
Once this genie was out of the bottle, angry fans soon came after Betty, and the 26-year-old received incessant death threats and bomb threats. After all, she was the one who gave him the equagesic, basically the same as giving someone an Advil, which ultimately led to his death, they believed. So I guess these fans naturally just assumed that she should be blamed for it. It's not like she gave him heroin, but humanity as a whole, it seems, has never been one for critical thinking. Other rumors included, of course, that the two were having an affair, but that Bruce wanted to end things. So in a bout of jealousy, Betty gave him the murder pill. In addition to Betty being a suspect, another one was Raymond Chow, Bruce's business partner. There were rumors that the two's personal relationship was becoming quite contemptuous, as there was apparently some sketchiness going on with the bookkeeping at Concord. Some wondered if Chow had Bruce offed to prevent his likely victorious return to Hollywood, leaving Chow behind in Hong Kong. The apparent smoking gun for this theory, of course, is that he didn't immediately call an ambulance when he found out there was something wrong. With Bruce gone, Chow gained full control of Concord, owning the rights to Bruce's most famous films. He could now sell them to the highest bidder and pretty much do whatever he wanted with the films as he pleased. Chow would also release a reimagined but finished version of Game of Death in 1978, five years after Bruce's death. Only 11 minutes of what Bruce shot for the project was used, and Chow used lookalikes and stand-ins to do the rest. This MFR even used footage of Bruce's actual funeral, including shots of his for-real dead body. Tasteless? You bet your ass it is. The final film was also a distant whisper of the one that Bruce had imagined, and was basically just finished to capitalize on his death. The funeral scene is on YouTube, and it's skeezy as all get out. It's also a terrible movie. And by the by, both Betty and Chow were cleared of any wrongdoing in Bruce's death in 1973. Of course, many conspiracy theorists disagree with this assessment. Speaking of conspiracy theories, one of these claims that Bruce refused to pay the Hong Kong triads for protection on his sets, so the triads ordered him killed. Triads are basically... Hong Kong's version of, like, the mafia. There are tons of other rumors involving Bruce and the triad and encounters and conflicts and whatever, including one that he was beaten to death by iron pipe-clad triad members. But all of these stories have only one or two quote-unquote witnesses whom are very likely quote-unquote coming forward with this information for attention. They'd hardly be the first individuals to say that they have information about a dead person for clout. Further, people who were actually close to the triad or to Bruce have said that he was considered untouchable due to his international fame and was actually beloved by the triad. If there was any doubt that the story was a bunch of bull, the autopsy report stated that there was no evidence of a physical attack when Bruce died. Out of all the, the conspiracy theories, theories, murder suspects, what have you, this next one may be the most random, but weirdly has a modicum of facts involved. May 10th and July 20th, 1973, the days that Bruce suffered from the cerebral edemas, were both the hottest days of their respective months. Why is that significant to this next theory? Well, six months before his first collapse, Bruce had had his sweat glands removed from his armpits as he didn't like the look of underarm sweat stains on camera. Well... Sweating isn't just to make you feel gross in the summer while you work out, boys and girls. Turns out it's also a crucial part of temperature regulation of the human body. Did the lack of these super important glands mean that Bruce's body couldn't regulate its temperature properly? I mean, side effects of the body overheating, which is also more commonly known as heat stroke, can include 
seizures, collapse, headaches, and yes, cerebral edema. So when I was reading about this, I'm like, oh my God, this is totally what happened. I was totally drinking the Kool-Aid on this theory. I was like, it's definitely that. Until I learned that armpit sweat glands are considered auxiliary sweat glands and aren't super important. Most human sweat for temperature regulation happens on your chest and back. And once again, when we go back to that autopsy report, it proved that there was no heat-related trauma in Bruce's body, which would have shown up in the kidneys. Then, of course, there's the meprobamate, the tranquilizer in the pill Bruce took before his death. And that has actually been recently fingered as the likely culprit for Bruce's demise. And I, I like this one. Let's be honest. That likely wasn't the first time in his life Bruce Lee took aspirin. If he had been allergic, he was likely aware of that fact. Meprobamate had been a popular treatment for anxiety in the 1950s, but had been banned in the U.S. in 1965 because of the medication's side effects. Allergic reaction is uncommon but possible, and one of those side effects is brain swelling. Bruce came to the U.S. in the early 60s. Meprobamate was already banned by then. Let's be honest, we don't take a lot of Tylenol aspirin unless we're very sick as children. So he probably didn't have it, you know, while he was a child in Hong Kong and it wouldn't have been available to him in the United States. So it it makes sense. I mean, out of any of this, it makes the most sense. And then finally, of course, since the episode is named after it, there is a version of events that ties Bruce's death with his sons because of a Lee family curse. Believers of this theory point to the fact that Bruce's parents lost a son before Bruce's birth. The Lee family was reportedly quite superstitious and believing the curse to be afflicting just the males in the family, it is claimed that this is why his parents nicknamed Bruce Little Phoenix at home, which is a nickname that's more traditionally attributed to girls. Believers of the quote-unquote curse further posit that it is not just an eerie coincidence that Brandon was shot on set, but that it was in a similar manner to which Bruce's character apparently dies in Game of Death. Bruce's character is shot and fakes his death, but, you know, it looks like he's killed while he, the character is making a film. Bruce's character in Game of Death was also engaged to be married, as was Brandon at the time of his death. Further, some synchronicity with their lives that people like to point to the likelihood of there being some kind of weird curse include the fact that both father and son were born in the Chinese year of the dragon. Brandon died at 28, the age his mother Linda was when her husband died. Both Bruce and Brandon also died during the making of their fifth starring role films, the films that would give each man posthumous worldwide fame in their own rights. And that's not all, folks. In the biopic about his father, which released in 1993, there is a scene in which Bruce is hunted by a demon that has haunted him since birth. It's a dream sequence. At the end of the movie, Bruce braces himself to face the demon, but it sets its sights on Brandon instead. Brandon was still alive when this scene was shot, so there's no like shitty attention grabbing being done here. But his death did occur before the movie was released, leading many to believe the fictional story somehow predicted his fate. And of course, this Lee family curse theory completely ignores the fact that both Bruce's older brother Peter lived to the ripe old age of 69, and his younger brother Robert is still alive today. So if it is a curse, it's a very lazy curse. Like his father's death, Brandon's, and the events surrounding it left some questions and conspiracy theories in its wake. For example, the big one, 
How was the prop gun loaded so egregiously incorrectly? Could someone on set have had it out for Brandon? There's no proof of that, but that's what some people believe. The footage of Brandon being shot is missing as well, though it is widely believed that police confiscated it as part of their investigation. Another rumored version of what happened to the footage was that the filmmakers destroyed it out of respect for the family or as part of the settlement that happened later separating father and son, but still leaning into the whole curse thing. Some believe that the film The Crow was in itself cursed. On the first day of shooting, a crewman was electrocuted. Later, another member of the crew crashed his car through the studio's plaster shop. Construction workers got hurt left and right, and bad weather damaged many set pieces. One of the movie's publicists was injured in another minor car accident, and the climax of all of these issues was, of course, Brandon getting shot and dying. As someone who's been on her fair share of film sets, this doesn't sound like a curse to me, just extreme incompetence. You don't need a curse to mess your set up if you hire cheap, negligent individuals. Just look at what happened on this set of Rust last year. All signs pointed to negligence on that set, and based on what happened, this was likely the same on the set of The Crow. Brandon's death was, in the end, the culmination of negligence. At the end of the day, some people always see and find conspiracy theories even when there are none. It is human nature to want to try and find patterns and to make sense of, you know, all the chaos in the world. But, you know, it's just with this, it's just tragic happenstance. It's not a curse. It's just horrible, horrible shit that happened to this family. It's fun to theorize about curses and the like. I personally love a good curse, ghost, paranormal, what have you kinds of stories. But they're just that, stories. And the same is true with the deaths of Bruce and Brandon Lee. Untimely deaths of young people are especially hard to swallow at the best of times, even more so when looking at these two, whom were in peak physical condition and in the prime of their lives. But the fact of the matter is, we could all get hit by a bus tomorrow. Youth is not a sign of immortality. When it comes to remembering Bruce, and frankly Brandon as well, their family matriarch Linda has said it best. Quote, all these years later, people still wonder about how Bruce died. I prefer to remember how he lived. When you want to move, you're moving. And when you move, you are determined to move. Not taking one inch, not anything less than that. If I want to punch... I'm going to do it, man, and I'm going to do it, you see. So, I mean, so that is the type of thing you have to train yourself into it, to become one with the, you think? Yeah, this is very Empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water. Now, you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now, water can flow. Or it can crash. Be water, my friend. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory. Or if you have any questions, you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got a buy me a coffee where you can just buy me a coffee and then I can keep staying up late making this podcast and ignoring a personal life. I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, like I said, I am 
off and I'm going to try and catch up on all these scripts that I'm behind on. But for the month of June, we're going hardcore history. So get ready. We're covering the events and some of the people surrounding one of Hollywood's darkest periods, the HUAC trials and the Hollywood blacklist. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.